Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Western nations are showing a united front after Russia's military action in Ukraine. Canada and its allies have put more economic sanctions in place. But the question is, what role will Canada play moving forward? And why aren't we sanctioning Putin directly? How will misinformation and intelligence play a role in Russia's invasion? Well, Stephanie Carvin, associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, will join us to talk about that. And Ontario's mask mandate? Not going away anytime soon. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's a heartbreaking to see some of the pictures uh, and some of the stories coming out of Ukraine over the last 24 hours. Uh, subways are crowded right now. This, I guess, brings back some memories for people of the Blitz in, in uh, London back in the uh, 1940s when the Nazi forces were uh, bombing London on a daily basis. Uh, that's what they're doing to escape uh, what might be happening uh, over above them there. Uh, some other stories, too, that we're going to get into in just a couple of seconds. Western nations are showing united front with Canada and its allies, of course, in the way of economic sanctions. And and I know that there's a great debate about whether or not these things are going to be effective at all. Global's Kyle Benning's been following that, and here's his report. Canada and its allies are sending a strong message to the Kremlin after Russia's decision to launch a military operation in Ukraine. The Prime Minister announcing a wave of economic sanctions for the second time this week. And make sure they understand that this was a grave misunderstanding of the rules-based order and a grave miscalculation by Vladimir Putin. The measures include stopping $700 million in trade in the tech and aerospace sector, as well as financial limitations on some Russian individuals and entities. The sanctions similar to those from the U.S. and Europe, with potentially more on the way after Friday's emergency NATO meeting. Kyle Benning, Global News. So uh, we want to talk about the, the sanctions and, and whether or not the strategy is, uh, is sound in that situation uh, and just what is going to happen. And you have to put this, I guess, in the context of uh, what's happening now. Uh, economic sanctions uh, traditionally, as we've seen in the past, uh, take time to, to have any impact at all. Uh, and the Ukrainian people don't have time at this stage. Uh, there are some reports right now that says the, the capital of Kiev could fall in the next couple of days. Uh, and, well, any of the shots you've seen from the reporters that are still on the scene there can see. I mean, you can still see the shelling that's happening in the horizon there from downtown Kiev. So uh, it's, it seems imminent, sadly. And, what you know, what good economic sanctions are going to do in that cir- circumstance uh, is a very valid question at this stage. Uh, but we do need to, to develop some sort of a strategy. And and I know nobody wants to get into a, a, a an all-out face-to-face uh, conflict with uh, the Russians. Uh, that's basically what NATO is all about, is to try to avoid those sorts of things. But I know Canadians are sending more troops over there, too. Not to Ukraine specifically, uh, but to the surrounding areas. And uh, we would assume that's to help uh, with the process of getting people out of that country, uh, which is going to be another problem. And I know that uh, Canada has always... Uh, opened its borders uh, for people that are in basically a refugee circumstance right now because they just want to get out of there and just get across the border as quickly as they can. The, the airspace has been shut down over Ukraine, of course. That happened early yesterday. So they can't fly out of the country. Uh, and, uh, well, trains, uh, you, you've seen the other uh, pictures, I'm sure, over the last couple of days, too. Just about every roadway leading out of the country, especially towards Poland, is uh, jammed with vehicles, people trying to get out of there with whatever they can. And you have to ask yourself, okay, NATO, is this enough? Uh, is is what they announced yesterday, even the harsh sanctions that they talked about, the Prime Minister and President Biden talked about, uh, is that really going to act as a deterrent? 
I want to bring Stephen Chase into the conversation. Stephen, of course, is a senior parliamentary reporter uh, for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Stephen, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about your perspective and what you've seen. You've been reporting on this. I know the piece that you wrote yesterday uh, in the Globe talked about uh, the Canada's commitment to, from a military standpoint. Uh, as you mentioned, another 3,400 troops in addition to the uh, 1,200 or so that are already there. What's what's the purpose of, of these troops being on standby? The first impression you hear when you see an announcement like yeah. that, Stephen, is is there going to be a military action? And But we're told time and time again that's not going to happen. There is a whole separate NATO command structure that we don't really pay attention to in the media. It's called the NATO forces structure, and its whole job is to think is to worry about worst case scenarios. So this is more about worrying about worst case scenarios, and it's about uh, international commitments we made uh, going back not only six or seven years when the Russian-Ukrainian war began, but even before that. There's something called a NATO response force. So when Anita Anand stood up and said that. We've placed 3,400 additional troops on a higher level of readiness, which means they have to be able to deploy much faster than normally would be the case. She's talking about the fact that NATO has activated a feature in its membership uh, that we never normally think about called a a quick response force or response force. And this is where uh, in the event of uh, threats or real crisis, we all have to contribute troops Uh, based on equipments we've made over the years. So there are 3,400 people across all the services who are now have been told you have to be at uh, the possibility of leaving faster. So I'm sorry for being a laborious explanation of that. No, no, no. It's it's important. Uh, No. This is one of the things where they've gone up to a higher level of alert. Think of it like DEFCON. They've moved up one level. Mm -hmm. So we are. um, this is sort of just a a part of NATO that, that we don't usually pay attention to. Uh, will it be called upon? I don't think so. I don't think that's happening. But there may be additional requests by other countries which um, form part of the old Soviet Union and neighbor or are close to Russia who want more uh, deterrence and reassurance forces there given the extraordinary events of this week. So, for instance, um, there are things called enhanced forward presence or battle groups that were established um, five years ago in like all the Baltic states and Poland, uh, other NATO countries now, like Romania and Hungary, have also talked about wanting NATO deterrence forces there too. So it, it's a it's it's fast moving. I don't see us going to war. I see us just playing our part in in NATO's um, readiness, quick response uh, plan, and uh, it's sort of the thing it's called for given the circumstances. So we can assume that's happening in other NATO countries, such as the United States as well. Yep. It's just, as yep. you say, it's not getting much attention right now. I, we seem to be focused on other things, I, I, understandably so. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if we can develop strategy, because that's been one of the big questions for anybody who's been following this over the last 24 hours, especially, Steve, about what the end game here is for, for Putin. Obviously, it sounds like you want to get rid of the government. Zelensky, I think you all but admitted that. Yeah. But you look at some of the strategic areas that, that they've done here, and as I think everybody who anticipated this was going to happen probably thought, yeah, they're going to go through the eastern states, and then they had been, but it was an all-out attack from different points. Why Chernobyl? Uh, that, that, that's got a lot of people scratching their heads. Why would they use that as one of their main targets? It was one of the first places they, they, they attacked and, and actually took from uh, from the uh, the Ukraine army yesterday. Well, I guess it's in the path on the way to Kiev, so you're going to be taking well, yeah. you can on that way, any kind of redoubt. So 
I don't see any strategic significance in it itself, um, but it's in the path on the way to Kiev. And uh, this is, it's clear that this is uh, an attempt, an all-out attempt to subdue and replace the government of Ukraine. Uh, this is not uh, some kind of minor incursion. Um, and so everything in their path is getting, um, you know, everything in their path is getting uh, uh, um, taken over. Yeah, and we already know that they've talked about uh, higher levels of radiation uh, since that happened because, of, well, it's a decommissioned planet. For people that may not remember what happened there 36 years ago, uh, that yeah. horrific tragedy. Uh, but you just wonder if uh, it's a Pandora's box. And if, you know, I, I'm assuming that the troops that are now holding that position uh, know what they're doing when it comes to a nuclear plant. But, uh, well, that's another story that we're going to have to follow. You saw the story this morning, of course, that, uh, and it was leaked initially by the Chinese news agency, but that's really the government that Russia is talking about setting up a meeting with, uh, with Ukraine officials uh, over the next few days. <laughs> is, is that to talk about terms of surrender, or do you think there's actually a negotiation to be had? I guess it all depends what words you use, but they want to control Ukraine. They want a puppet state. They want a, a buffer state that, is, that, that operates at their bidding and, um, and is definitely not tied to the West. As you know, the problem over the last uh, 10 years is Ukraine has been looking to Europe, has been interested in express interest in joining the European Union, has expressed interest and basically begged to join NATO, uh, something that uh, NATO has held off on. But Mr. Mr. Putin wants to transform uh, the government of Ukraine into a compliant government that uh, has no has no significant ties with the European Union and with NATO, and so it's whatever he needs to accomplish that. How do you feel about the sanctions and, and what's gone on here? And uh, and, and the effectiveness of, of, of something like this is, is, is it? It's just sending a message to Putin, but I'm, you know, I mean, they've had been down this road before, and it hasn't deterred him to do what he seems to want to do. No, but our sanctions go after um, oligarchs. They go after government officials. Basically, one of the big things they do is deny those people the ability to use Canadian banking services to hide their money in Canada. So it's like we're all shutting our doors. We're not saying that people have assets here. We're saying as every country shuts their doors, we're one more country where you can't move your assets. That is important. How that said, Putin is going to uh, take Kiev, and uh, people in Kiev are, are sheltering in subway stations, are handing out uh, machine guns to the population, and we still haven't sanctioned Putin. And we still haven't cut them off from the SWIFT uh, banking network. The SWIFT international banking network basically underpins all monetary and electronic transfers. And uh, because of uh, an, a lack of ability of Western countries to agree, you need enough of them to, 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 uh, to agree, and Germany and Italy apparently aren't. We haven't been able to do that. We haven't sanctioned Putin directly. Canada didn't go after, um, uh, didn't ban Canadians from providing any and all financial services to Ukraine. So I'm surprised how limited it is. Why are we keeping anything in abeyance right now? Why are we holding back? Uh, that's one thing that I'm puzzled by. Well, and that's one of the things that I was scratching my head as I heard this announcement yesterday. Putin's a very wealthy man. Uh, you know, he's he's taken advantage of his position over the last number of years. And, and of course, those who support him, the oligarchs, are, are, have made an awful lot of money. Uh, target Putin. I, I mean, hit him, as you say, hit them where it hurts. Uh, you know, the Russian people are going to suffer for this long time. We've seen that happen with economic hardship. Uh, but Putin's assets are, are something I thought they could have targeted. But it goes to your point, Stephen. I know you've written about this in the past. Uh, there's 
lukewarm support in other NATO nations, especially Germany, France, and Italy, as you've mentioned, uh, because of their ties to Russia. And they're afraid to, to really get this guy ticked off and afraid of any repercussions, I guess, that are going to happen. I mean, they have to stand up against them. That's what they do in NATO. That's their job. That's what they've pledged to do. Uh, but they seem rather nervous about doing it. They do. And I, if I may, I may also just remind people of what happened in Afghanistan. We all knew that Afghanistan was that the U.S. was pulling out of Afghanistan. Everyone who paid attention to it knew that. Uh, we didn't know the Taliban would take over so quickly. But that this is the problem, and what I'm concerned about is two examples within you know a year of cases where the West has basically just failed or basically withdrawn or basically not acted. And so there's a it's a very interesting series of precedents where you see Western limits of Western power, right? And so I'm, I'm concerned about what this means for Taiwan. I'm concerned about what this means for uh, other areas in the, in, the, in the world where, um, where uh, the West is facing a challenge. Uh, I mean, the, fact, the sad fact is Ukraine is not in the lifeboat of NATO countries, so we're not going to save it because it's not in our lifeboat. But there are countries in our lifeboat. Uh, there are people we're supposed to protect, and we've, we've committed to defend the Baltic states. And the concern they have is, the Kremlin has never been happy with their independence or their membership in NATO. So if he succeeds here, what's next? Well, that was one of the other things that we talked about on the program yesterday. Does this embolden some of the other nefarious characters globally? And China's, you're right, is the best example. They've pretty much tried to flex their muscle in, in the south uh, part of that. You know, well, it's China Sea. I mean, they've talked about territorial waters, Taiwan, certainly, Hong Kong. I mean, there's a long list of things here. And th- it seems clear. I mean, one of the messages that you could take from this is, uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, the Western countries, and they'll, they'll jump up and down about this, but they're not really going to do much about it. So go ahead and do what you want. And besides, and, and all the ones you've just mentioned there are also nuclear powers. Uh, and could right. use the same excuse that Putin says. You try to do anything against us, and we're going to, you know, come back at you with with what this says. And I, I think that's scaring an awful lot of people off right now. Yeah, and I, I I feel bad talking about China when we're as if we're skipping over what's happening here. I mean, Ukraine. What is happening in Ukraine is going to, as you you I know you've talked about, is the biggest security challenge, the biggest uh, you know offensive in Europe in in in, a, in since World War II. It is going to change the, uh, if he wins, if he succeeds, it's going to basically push Russia's borders right up to that of NATO, uh, effectively, even if it's still a separate country. Uh, and it's going to change everything about our relationship with Russia and our ability to work with them around the world, uh, because uh, we do need to work with them sometimes. So I don't think we fully digested this. I don't think the West is fully committed here because it's not a member of NATO. They're going to do everything they can, but they're there, it, we hit our self-interest at some point, and we hit a limit where it begins to impinge on our self-interest. And I'm surprised they're not doing more. I'm surprised that the Western country couldn't agree on the SWIFT banking system. I'm surprised we haven't sanctioned Putin directly. I'm surprised that Canada hasn't gone after, for instance, exports to the oil and gas sector in, in Russia. More, uh, we can, we, we could, we've already limited and restricted what could be exported there, but we could uh, sanctions experts tell me we could do a lot more, and we're not. We're not banning all banking services to Russia. Um, so, you know, there's a it's it's odd that we're we're holding anything back right now, and um, I guess we're hitting the limits of national self-interest. But I, I, but your point about China, I, I I I'm sharing your my concern here. I don't want to short shift what's happening in Ukraine. It's just tragic, and we need to focus on that. But the Russia-China relationship here is very much, I think, a part of this. Uh, you know, they they 
but as we mentioned earlier, have a rather acrimonious relationship. They don't like each other very much, uh, but they need each other right now. I mean, China and Russia have already signed a deal for another pipeline, which is going to bring, uh, again, uh, Russian oil and gas, I guess, into, into China, which is much needed, of course. Uh, I'm not suggesting that that relationship could cancel out any sanctions, but it, it gives them a bit of a lifeline to say, hey, OK, let's, you know, it's mutually beneficial for us to be friends for now anyway. Uh, and, and that could negate part of, the, of what the, the NATO people are trying to do here vis-a-vis sanctions. Yeah. And you have also seen India um, yeah. stunningly refuse to basically even condemn Russia. So you are there is a alternative list of friends of Russia which are, are standing by them. Interesting to see that dynamic. Uh, if you were advising in a situation like this, uh, the Russians are saying they want to meet in, in Belarus. Would you would you go? Well, I think we always have to try. I mean, you can't be seen to turn away something. But they've made it clear that the terms that they will agree to are a, a, a puppet state in Ukraine. And uh, so it, it may be a doomed meeting unless we're willing to uh, give up on Ukraine. So you go to the meeting. But we had Minsk 1 and we had Minsk 2, which were both agreements supposedly to try to resolve I mean, let's face it, a seven-year war in eastern Ukraine that's killed 13,000 people and barely registered in the, in the world press until um, uh, Putin's latest moves. But it hasn't, talk hasn't helped before. Uh, I don't see how they can, they can, they can um, avoid at least the, the attempt to talk. But the terms that Russia's dictating, I don't think the West are going to swallow. Maybe Russia's hoping that finally, I mean, Putin's been saying for months, Tell us that Ukraine can never join NATO. Um, you know, withdraw your troops from there. Basically, give it over to us, and then we'll talk. And um, is the West more likely to agree to those terms? I don't think so. So I think they have to talk, or at least. But I don't know where it's going to go because uh, I don't know how we can swallow that. That exactly. would be another sign of the limits of Western power. Uh, absolutely. And, and you have to wonder about Zelensky's safety in a situation like that, too. But uh, uh, as you say, yeah. if you if you do nothing, then now that you're being accused of doing nothing, I suppose. Stephen, always great to have you on the program. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. You're welcome. Take care. Take care. Stephen Chase, who was the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, and as you've been reading in the Globe over the last couple of days, been tracking this story uh, for months now, actually. Uh, so uh, get the latest on this. Uh, we'll try to keep in touch with what's happening there. There are a couple of other twists and turns that are bothering an awful lot of people. And, and we talked about anytime there's a conflict like this, a military conflict, uh, there's always the, the, the misinformation uh, aspect of this too. And that has already started in such a big way. We're going to talk about that and lots more when we come back. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's interesting to see the reaction. And, and I'm in the uh, social media world, of course, as soon as something like this happens, uh, you need only go on to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, anything, and you are inundated with information. Not all of it true, mind you. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, but one item that is true is there's apparently uh, an awful lot of people in Russia that are not pleased with Vladimir Putin and what happened uh, with the, the Ukraine invasion yesterday. Shocked Russians have turned out by the thousands, apparently, to decry their country's invasion of Ukraine as emotional calls for protest grew on social media. ABC's James Longman was there. He reports that 1,700 people in 53 different Russian cities were detained Thursday, at least 940 of them in Moscow. 
Here's Longman's report. There have been over a thousand arrests across the country at protests like these in over 50 cities. A large number of people here in Russia do believe what Vladimir Putin says because they've been watching and listening a lot of the state-controlled media. But for these mostly young people here, it takes a special kind of bravery to protest in Vladimir Putin's Russia, especially on the day he goes to war. Absolutely, it does. Uh, but let's talk about that uh, information or misinformation, as the case might be, because it's a tool that's used oftentimes. Uh, some would call it propaganda. That's probably a very apt phrase in this circumstance. Uh, to talk about this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Stephanie Carvin. Stephanie, of course, is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, Stephanie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Well, it's good to know your city's coming back to normal, too. So, uh, oh, gosh, know, yeah. But, surely. <laughs> uh, but now we're focusing on what's happening in Ukraine uh, and, and misinformation. And uh, I'm just going over some sites here this morning, uh, of, which always seems to happen in this circumstance. Uh, I, I guess, you know, the social media stuff is a, is a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, I, people have, uh, I got emails already this morning, said, look at this, is what a fighter jet, a Russian fighter jet going over top of Kiev. Well, they haven't. Uh, but it, it's easy, I guess, with all these wonderful things we can do with our technology to make it look like so. And, and I guess there's a lot of people that are just going to say, hey, what's on social media it must be true. Yeah, I think that's true. I, there's a real temptation. Um, like, look, this is a very dramatic story, to say the least. It's it's extremely tragic. And and honestly, my heart goes out to, uh, you know, Ukraine and, and uh, everyone uh, there at this time. But I, I think because of that, we're compelled and we want to like um, retweet as fast as we can and and just try to absorb as much information that we can. And and often Twitter is the source of breaking news. Right. So, as you say, like it's, it's, it's in some ways it allows us to kind of see firsthand really what's happening on the ground. But there's going to be a lot of folks who want to take advantage of that. There's going to be a lot of individuals that are, are going to, you know, uh, do it for their for their own fun. Right. There's uh, been a lot of, uh, you know, talk about like how people are actually using video game footage to try and create misinformation. Uh, and then there's going to be like something a little bit more nefarious. Right. Uh, different states are going to try and impact the conversation for in various ways. They're going to try and influence in, influence the discussion and, and try to bring things forward. So, yeah, um, you're going to see footage um, from from events that have occurred before. This actually happened during the Ottawa convoy, right? There was uh, other convoys where uh, people, you know, people were showing images uh, from, you know, things that weren't even in Canada uh, and claiming for them happening in Ottawa. But the thing we worry about, I think, going forward is is something called deep fakes. Uh, yeah. Deep fakes, uh, yeah, are these... Um, artificially intel uh, artificial artificially intelligence created images of events that didn't happen in the in in a belief you know that they can help spread information uh, disinformation or misinformation going forward about what's happening so i think this is a real part uh, this is some. This is where this is headed, uh, especially if people are, you know, uncritically just simply retweeting information or trying to amplify um, bad information for whatever reason. Yeah, that's that's frightening technology, as you say. It's it's it, it looks real to everybody, and I know it's it's a real concern and a real security concern. Uh, but let's let's talk about some of the stuff that is being spread. And sometimes, as you mentioned, it's it's done by the governments themselves that are involved in these circumstances, and we're seeing that now in in Russia. Uh, and Putin made this uh, analogy, uh, I guess it was Sunday night when he was having his meeting, it was televised in, in Russia, uh, about denazifying Ukraine. And, and 
apparently that plays pretty well in Russia because while they were there was like every, a lot of lies, I guess there's an element of truth to it that you just kind of blow up and, and use it to your own particular situation here. But the the fact that you know he he wants to denazify uh, Ukraine. Well, first of all, uh, you know the, the president of Ukraine is is Jewish. Uh, Zelensky is Jew. Yet people seem to think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we need to do. And the history there, of course, is, you know, back in 1941 during World War II, Germany did occupy uh, Ukraine. They occupied a lot of Europe, as it turned out. Uh, but just, And I know that Nazis are hated in Russia, as they are everywhere else. Uh, but Putin's actually using that, I guess, to try to convince his people that what I'm doing here is actually a good thing. Yeah, I mean, look, Russia you know, has one of the most significant war museums in the world, right? Um, uh, it fought the great patriotic war against Nazi Germany. Uh, it lost millions of people, like we, like unfathomable amounts of people, really, from a Canadian perspective. And that was against Nazi Germany. So in, in calling this uh, a fight against Nazism, there, there's, a re- there's a very important historical reason for doing so. But it is... Uh, you know, as you say, there's the grain of truth and then there's the the reality on the ground. So the, the reality is there is a group of Nazis um, in eastern Ukraine that have been fighting off the, the Russian invasion. It's called the Azov Battalion. Um, this is a concern because not only is it are there actual Nazis there with war experience, but also a lot of individuals from Western countries have traveled there. Individuals associated with the far right in Canada, for example, have gone there in order to get trained training so that one day if there's ever a conflict here in Canada that they would have that military experience and credibility um, among among peers uh, that they could either recruit or uh, participate in some kind of fighting. So is that a legitimate threat? A hundred percent. And it's something that honestly the Canadian government has not spoken a lot about, right? Okay, so that's that's the reality on the ground. Let's just be blunt about it. Russia also has Nazis, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's, there's, oh, yeah. you know, there's a very far right, strong far right elements in in Russia. And in some cases, um, we see strains of that even in Putin's own thinking when he portrays himself as a traditionalist, as someone who is, um, you know, uh, trying to bring about a traditional understanding of Christianity and um, family oriented culture in in Russia. That's very much also not true. It's very much exaggerated. Um, So, you know, for him to basically describe uh, Ukraine, um, which, you know, is a, is, a, is a democracy, but, you know, a flawed one and, and is building and growing. For him to describe that as some kind of Nazi regime is just uh, really repugnant, uh, ahistorical and incorrect. And the fact is he has created the conditions in eastern Ukraine for these Nazi groups to thrive. So if, if there is a problem there, he is absolutely full of blame as well. Well, exactly. And and uh, historically, if I recall, Stephanie, uh, I mean, when Germany did, the Nazi Germany did occupy Ukraine uh, during World War II, uh, there were people in Ukraine who actually cheered that on and, and they were quite happy about it. But, but it's because it basically liberated them from the jackboot of, of Stalin. And they basically said, these guys are better than these guys. You know, this is what they've been doing to us for the last 40 years. Uh, at least these guys are going to be different. Now, it turned out they weren't. But, you know, different mm. end of the spectrum, I suppose. But so there was I, I, I suppose you can find historical proof or at least Putin can find historical proof to say, see, these guys actually embrace Nazism. Well, they don't. 
but compared to what was going on uh, with Stalin's Russia, I guess they figured that was a better alternative. So well, it's, yeah, uh, like I said, say, but this is how disinformation works, right? Yeah, you always exactly. get that kernel of truth, right? And then and then go with it. And it's something we've seen, you know, it's something we've seen in Ottawa, even like the idea that you have. Um, you know, we've seen, seen conspiracy theories about the World Economic Forum. Is the World Economic Forum a flawed place that, you know, I, I actually am very critical of the World Economic Forum. I have, I have a lot of trouble with that organization. But is it like the 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 place where, you know, a, a great reset that's, you know, organized by a cabal that's planning to take all your money, um, you know, basically being put? No, it's not. It's just, it's ridiculous. So, I mean, they always take, you know, the, the most convincing lies are the ones that start with that single aspect of truth. And um, as you say, whether it's disinformation, whether it's Putin's own speeches, we absolutely see that right now. Well, and I think you've got a Canadian senator that's actually passing along on, on that very uh, theme that you were just talking about a few minutes ago, too. Because uh, it, it, these things, are they're easy to believe, aren't they, when, when you get things like that? Because you figured, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I know. But this is, this is, you know, right now we're living in crazy times. Like, I don't even, like, like, this is my analysis. Everything is bad right now. Um, you know, we have a pandemic. We've just had this occupation in Ottawa, uh, fueled by misinformation and disinformation. We've had, uh, we have this war going on uh, in, in, in Ukraine. And I think what is important here is that, um, people want explanations, People want to think that there's some reason we're going through this, that there's some master plan, that someone's behind all this and we could do something about it, right? And they also, secondly, I think they also, you get empowered, I think, as a person, if you believe that you are uh, privy to some kind of special exclusive information, right? Yeah. That makes you mm -hmm. different from everyone else. So, you know, you feel special, you feel empowered if you think you've got it all figured out. So I think for these reasons that that's why there's this great appeal of this disinformation and misinformation. And that's why states, you know, are eagerly going to try and pump it out about, you know, really dramatic trending events. Well, and they understand, I mean, you know, the, 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 we have a dependence, uh, some would say an obsession, I guess, uh, with social media. And, and that's usually uh, the place that people will go to to try to find that validation, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, I'm guilty of this as anybody. Right. Like um, I <laughs> I'm, I'm glued to Twitter. I think, you know, you get that report on your iPhone every every week saying, oh, your your time on your iPhone. So many 70, minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Seventy eight percent. Like, oh, gosh. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a very human tendency, I think. But, you know, we can all stop. You know, we can we can be better at this. I think, you know, Ukrainians, for example, they're used to Russian propaganda. Right. They they have developed because they've been forced to develop critical thinking skills about, you know, what's actually happening and, and, and what to do about it, right? And we in Canada, we've been fortunate, right? We've never really had to do this before. So I would encourage people, if you're seeing footage from an unverified account, um, to be very skeptical and not to retweet it, right? Look to see if you can find a news agency covering it. Um, like, like um, whether, you know, maybe you don't want to believe CNN, maybe you don't want to believe uh, CBC, but there's other reputable organizations that are out there that are sending out um, information, you know, just, just, you know, when in doubt, don't retweet. Um, just be really careful, really skeptical. And, you know, don't don't further the ends of states that are presently engaged in some pretty horrific activity. 
Well, exactly. And, and you know, you, you, said, you said, for instance, the Ukraine people are, are, are used to this and they've got a defense mechanism built up about it. Us, not so much, because uh, we have easy access to this. And, and again, there's that believability. I mean, it's, it's, it's because of that that I guess, you know, that the stories like Bill Gates is behind the whole vaccination program because he wants to implant stuff into our bodies. I mean, the, people bought this. I mean, I, I don't know how many times they had that thrown at me when we were having discussions on this program. Uh, about vaccinations, et cetera. And, and people embrace this stuff because they want to. They, they want to believe there's something outrageous going on. So it's 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 an easy sell when some of this stuff uh, gets dumped onto a social media site that everyone's going to retweet this because that way you're in on it, aren't you? You're part of the, the – now you're informing other you're people. You're part of the elite, right? Yeah, yeah, you're part of the elite, right? And, yeah, you have that secret knowledge that you have access to, and it makes you different. And that also helps, unfortunately – you know, drive polarization because what it does is like it creates the perception of an in-group of informed people who are kind of, you know, sharing their own Facebook stories and then like an outside group of people who don't believe that. And the problem is, and, you know, whether we're talking about Ukraine or whether we're talking about Ottawa is we have to bridge that gap, right? Um, it's a really important thing. I mean, I, I was kind of struck uh, this earlier this week when um, there's a reporter, Ashley Burke, who works for the CBC, and she was driving in her van to go check out one of the compounds, which are, are still around the city. And she was, uh, it's very icy in Ottawa right now, and her van fell off the road. And one of the convoy supporters came up to her wearing a defund the CBC hat and actually pulled her van out of the ditch and said, I would do this for anybody. Um, even though, you know, she literally represented the organization he was wearing a hat about, you know, I mean, we, we still have a shared humanity. We still have the ability to have conversations and to do good things for each other. But this dis disinformation, the goal is really, I mean, and, and fundamentally, I, I say this, you know, this is the goal of, of Russian propaganda is to divide us, is to amplify anger, is to make social division worse. Um, I have a friend in the United States, his name Clint Watts, and he always says the goal is to turn a, a social crack into a chasm. So, you know, when you yeah. are hitting that retweet button, reposting that story, think about like, okay, what is the impact of me sharing this? And, and what is it saying? And what is it doing? And, and that's, I think it goes a long way to not just countering what happened in Ottawa, but also countering um, what Putin wants us to believe. Exactly. Stephanie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, have a great weekend. Uh, you're free to go all over the city these days in Ottawa. That's fabulous. Uh, <laughs> it's but... wonderful. <laughs> we've, been, we've, we've been liberated. Uh, yeah. And uh but yeah, with a lot, lot of follow there, but uh, always happy to spread my own uh, misinformation on your show. <laughs> okay. Take care, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie Carpin, uh, professor, of course, at the Norman Patterson School at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had our uh, weekly uh, briefing from Dr. Kieran Moore yesterday, he being, of course, the chief medical officer for the province of Ontario. Uh, and he was asked about the timetable for uh, the easing of some of the, the COVID protocols and restrictions that have been in place for the last little while uh, and talked about it in great detail. Uh, as Tina Trajani reports, uh, just a few days away from some of these things uh, being lifted or at least eased. Uh, but there's one that's going to hang around for a while. Here's Tina's report. Ontario's top doctor says masks are an important tool in reducing virus transmission and protecting those recovering from illness. And Dr. Kieran Moore says we'll have to keep wearing them for now. But we are reviewing these measures and hope to provide an update in the coming weeks. Unlike Quebec, which will be lifting the mask mandate in elementary and secondary schools first, Dr. Moore says when mandates are lifted in public settings here, 
they will also be lifted in schools. That would seem to align uh, as the risk decreases uh, to do them together. He notes masking policies will likely stay in place for high-risk settings, such as public transit, long-term care and hospitals, even after they're lifted everywhere else. The highest-risk settings, I think we've learned uh, that the masks uh, have benefit. As for some kind of timeline, Dr. Moore would only say key indicators would continue to be monitored. Tina Trajani, Global News. So let's talk about the implications of that and uh, whether or not we're actually paying attention uh, to what the good doctor is saying. Uh, Pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Professor Thomas Tenkate. Uh, Professor Tenkate, of course, is uh, a professor in the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Good to talk with you again today. Uh, Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me back. What's uh, what's your read on what you heard yesterday, Thomas, from uh, Dr. Moore here? Uh, It seems as if we're on the right path here and things look to be happening. But what I'm hearing from an awful lot of people, again, is, well, wait a second. What about Alberta? What about Quebec? Why is Ontario lagging behind everybody else? Are we lagging or are we just being prudent? Uh, Yeah, I I think we're, we're being quite conservative in what we're doing. I think, you know, my take is that the, you know, the government got a, quite spooked after the you know after you know early on in the pandemic when when they sort of eased up quite quickly and then you know we got hit again and so so uh so i think what they're trying to do is you know since then they've they've actually seemed to be the most conservative of all the provinces in the way they've sort of operated and and like from a public health perspective you know i'm i'm totally fine with that uh but i also know that uh you know people are at, at a point now where they're sort of saying yeah, let's just uh, ease off everything and let's get back to normal. So, so, so it is definitely a a, a a balancing act there. So let's let's talk about what he when uh, mentioned yesterday because it's just just the masking. It's of course some of the other stuff too, uh, and I I agree with your uh, your your uh, analysis here too. I, I I think a lot of people got spooked when they saw you know hey okay we're going to kind of get cool here and we're going to start easing a lot of these things and then Omicron came along and it just knocked everybody for a loop. And uh, we're still a little apprehensive. But from that standpoint, though, are we out of the woods? I mean, you know, it, I, I've heard that there's still pressure on some hospitals. It's going to take them a long time to to get back to, quote, unquote, normal. Uh, and they're concerned about a spike like this. Are, are we are being as as conservative but as prudent as we should be in a situation like that? Because uh, other provinces are jumping way ahead of us here. Is, is, are we leaving ourselves open to a, to another spike? Well, yeah, like like I definitely feel that uh, you know it, we're still in the in the zone of of needing to be a little bit conservative because of you know even though all the metrics are showing a you know a good downward trend in in you know pressure on the health healthcare system, it's still you know there's still you know quite a number of cases there you know in hospitalised and in ICUs and you know one of the one of these statistics that I I don't think people have heard much about is the fact of uh, of all the people in hospital who have COVID, half of them came in for something else. So as in, they they uh, you know they didn't they didn't think they had COVID. They were coming in for something else, and then when they get tested in hospital, they have COVID. And so what that's really showing is that there's there's a lot of asymptomatic uh, and community spread occurring, uh, and and. That's going to, you know, even if someone's coming into hospital with for something but doesn't have COVID, then the hospital system has to sort of gear up to deal with them in regard to infection risk uh, as well. So, so we've got, you know, there, there's, you know, ongoing pressures on the on the healthcare system because of because of this. But uh, overall, I think we're we're, uh, you know, the system is is coping, but but it's still fragile. And, and the other element of that, too, I would think, too, Thomas, is that there's probably a lot of people have COVID or, or have symptoms of it. 
uh, that aren't statistics. I mean, they haven't mm -hmm. gone to the hospital. They maybe even haven't done testing on this, uh, but they're still living with it. And, and as you say, if they're, you know, if they're testing positive or if they are positive with this, uh, they can continue to spread it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think the, uh, you know, the case numbers that they report uh, are really not a good indication anymore of, you know, what's happening. I think, you know, the, the best numbers are, uh, you know, what's, who's being hospitalised and, and the, the pressure on the healthcare system, you know, and then also, uh, you know, what's happening in long-term care homes and, uh, and, that, and also in the, uh, you know, the term they talk about percent positivity for the cases when they do do the testing and, you know, what, what number of cases what number of uh, tests are actually positive uh, for COVID versus the total number of tests. And so, so all of those measures are, are in the good trend, in the a downward trend, but, but, but overall the, uh, you know, the, the healthcare system is still uh, quite, you know, quite substantially stressed with, with the number of cases that, are, that, that they're dealing with. So, so I think, you know, given all of that, I think it's still important that we, uh, you know, we still be a bit cautious, but but also be realistic about. Okay, we're at a point where the 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 uh, you know there is uh, it's very widespread in the community now. It's it's at a level that we can manage, and so how do we manage that into the future in a way that is uh, you know is sustainable for everyone? We look at those numbers um, well on a daily basis. Just around this time of the morning, for the last two years, I look for that, those numbers to see hospitalizations, ICUs, etc. And, and and I understand that as a metric that that we've kind of become used to and rely on. But are we tracking the other elements of COVID? Uh, you know, there are people that have COVID that are still dealing. Uh, not necessarily with COVID, but with the fallout from it, you know, the brain fog, uh, uh, the myocarditis. I mean, you know, we would, you know, the mm -hmm. impact it can have on the on the heart. Uh, there's a lot of things that, too that we found out about COVID, uh, you know, after the fact, of course, because it was relatively new to us. Those people aren't statistics because they're not necessarily in hospital, but they're still being treated for those symptoms or those mm -hmm. after effects. Oh uh, yeah, d definitely. You know, the the you know what they call the long COVID and what is this? Yeah. Sort of, Ongoing, ongoing effects of, 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 of having COVID, you know, we, you know, uh, we, you know, identifying more and more uh, complications and, you know, uh, issues to do with that. And, and definitely, you know, all of those, you know, people who are suffering through that are, uh, are placing a, you know, pressure on the healthcare system as well and, you know, and, and, and are having to live with it. And so, so I think, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, as a health, public health person you know I, I still want to prevent people from getting getting infected because then we can also try then we can prevent people from having those uh, longer term implications you know some people say well you know it, it doesn't matter it, it's not that uh, deadly anymore you know let me get it and I'll, I'll get on with things but but you just never know what's going to happen in regard to those longer term impacts and, and we're still really learning and understanding what they are and so so I think you know from a precautionary perspective we we need to still do what we can to try and uh you know limit the spread limit transmission and and keep keep people as protected as possible but while while um you know being mindful of uh you know where we're at and 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 uh doing it in a way that sort of lets lets people have some level of normality uh, as well well and because we have a tendency i guess it's human nature to let our guard down if we think that okay the numbers are going down 
you know, and, and other jurisdictions are lifting it. But these, these things that you just talked about, I mean, you know, the, I know where I saw something I was on Global a couple of weeks ago about a, a, basically a rehab facility where they're, they're treating people with long COVID, et cetera. The, so it's not a hospital setting, but th- this is like a two years after some of these people have had it. Uh, some of them are having to learn to walk again. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of impacts that can have on different parts of the body, I guess. And, and we tend to forget about those because we're not telling those stories much anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think you know what what I'm sort of see, seeing is that we're at this point where, even though a lot of the measures that you know you call mandates uh, are requirements for trying to prevent community uh, spread and, and minimise the risk within the community, uh, that even if there are those those as a mandate are uh, lifted, there's still as an individual and looking at your own individual risk and 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 saying, well, you know. How can I minimise my risk of of, uh, of of becoming infected? And and just because you know maybe masks might be lifted uh, or or uh, you know other other aspects you know that are easing off doesn't mean that I I should sort of just ease off as well because you know maybe you know based on you know individual uh, factors you know whether or not someone's immunocompromised or, or have a range of other underlying medical conditions or if you live in a in a household that has uh, has people who are more vulnerable. I think, you know, all of those factors as an individual, in some ways, the the issue that instead of the, the government mandating and, and trying to control it more broadly is, is more shifting to the individual to say, well, how can I, uh, what's my risk and what's, how do I assess my risk and how do I manage my own risk and those of the the people uh, you know, I, I love. So, so I think that's where we're moving into that, that aspect of, you know, what are the measures that, that I as an individual should be uh, should be doing uh, what includes you know continue to wear masks particularly in in high risk settings and uh, you know and if if people haven't been had their third booster shot to still get that and and those sorts of things. Are you concerned about lack of compliance because we seem to be over the worst of this? I know we probably had this conversation a year ago too, Thomas. But uh, you know we're at that point once again, uh, and that that's what I think set things off. I mean, you know, it's great to say, hey, you know, we're going to put people back in the Scotiabank Centre. You can go watch the Leafs and the Raptors play again, and it, you know, in a couple of days, that's probably going to go back to full capacity. But you may remember one of the restrictions they put in place when they did that last year was, but you got to wear the mask. Well, nobody did. Uh, and then we had another spike. And uh, there's always this concern that, uh, you know, that's it, we're OK now. You know, the worst is over. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's 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 that aspect of, you know, you know human, you know, human nature where, you know, we uh, because of being under the sort of restrictions and, and uh, mandates for so long, people are, are pretty keen to sort of move move past that. And and so once once the signal's there to say, okay, you don't need to do it, you know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, most people will will take take the government up on that. Whereas I think, you know, you also have, you know, I would still encourage people to say, think about, well, okay, in these various settings, uh, you know, what, what's my own risk? But also, you know, do I still have some level of... Uh, you know, responsibility to, you know, other people in the community to try and, uh, you know, sort of ensure that, you know, if, you know, uh, I try and minimise any transmission to them as well. And so so it, it's, it's we're in that sort of back to that point where, you know, if we're going to live with this and, and on an on, ongoing basis, how can we manage that uh, individual uh, sort of infection risk and, and what's, our, what's our sort of uh, role 
as a, as a member of the community and how can we uh, sort of both look after ourselves but also look after others as well. Let me ask you to crystal ball just a little bit, if I could, Thomas. Uh, since we're at that point, and I'd, I'd like to think that we're going to continue on the trajectory and maybe by July or June or something, uh, uh, you know, we'll we'll be saying, boy, that was awful for the last couple of years. Uh, but we know we're not going to get rid of this. It's, it's always going to be around. Uh, do you anticipate it's going to be a real problem again when we get into the autumn and, and, and into the winter of next year, too? Uh, like a flu that we're going to have to get vaccinated for and, and you know, see people that are going to be am- impacted seriously by it? Yeah, like, 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 I definitely think you know we have to uh, be aware or, or sort of come to terms with the fact that it it isn't isn't going to go away. And so you know that they have, you know, more recently there's been that discussion of you know how do we live with this? And 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 I think you know what what that really means is that uh, you know just like we have with uh, the seasonal flu, there's there are going to be times in the year where where we're going to have a, an, a you know a, a surge of, of cases uh, and and. People should be, uh, you know, more mindful of of uh, you know infection and and infecting, you know, either getting infected or infecting others at, at you know, particular times of the year, but also uh, you know that that aspect of an ongoing uh, booster, uh, like I think that's that's going to sort of be uh, you know what what we'll you know have to expect and you know maybe it'll be a combined shot with the, the seasonal flu or you know who knows but but I think yeah we, we're definitely uh, going to be at that. In, in the situation where, you know, in, at certain times of year, there's likely to have some surges in, in cases, but also, uh, you know, how do we live with this uh, moving forward? And, and definitely, you know, the, the measures, you know, say masking, hand washing, sort of trying to uh, have the, the, the distancing where possible, you know, all of those measures help with the other respiratory viruses as well. So, so if, we can, if we can still uh, take on some of those measures into the future, We'll also be uh, helping with, you know, minimising seasonal flu and, and other things as well. And so, so they're, they're all positives that I think that we uh, we should be sort of thinking about. And, and you know, so I don't, you know, personally, I think you know, I'll be still wearing you know, sort of a mask into the future, particularly on in you know, on transit and other high risk settings. And 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 uh, I think you know that it's good to respect people if that's what they want to do. Uh, and uh, you know, overall, that's uh, you know try and learn from what, what we've gone through to sort of say, well, how can we sort of minimise the ongoing ongoing risk for, for COVID, but also for, for some of the other, some of these other respiratory viruses as well. And I think that's uh, what you and your colleagues are anticipating uh, going down the road, aren't we? That the, the mask wearing will be optional, uh, not necessarily mandatory. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it'll, you know, the, as a, as a, from a, it'll move from that sort of mandatory requirement to to a recommendation, and and so then you, you know, as an individual, you have to sort of say, well, what, what, what am I comfortable with? Uh, but also, what is my own individual risk factors and the risk factors of of the uh, community that I live in, and and so because of that, and you know, uh, you know, sort of saying, well, okay, I'll I'll, I'll keep wearing a mask uh, on on in these settings, or I'll, you know, I, I won't wear it in these other settings, uh, and so so it's it's sort of trying to sort of balance that in, into the future, I think. Well, uh, we're looking forward to that day and, and having that discussion with you, too. And if we finally do get there, but uh, here's hoping, as Dr. Murray mentioned yesterday, that we're, we're on the right path. And uh, I guess compliance is going to be a key element. And that's always been the message, I guess. Thomas, pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. Have a great day.
You too. Take care. Thomas Tenkate, of course, professor at Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.